all windows and doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PalaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Live. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. We have a lot of ground to cover. We're going to talk about international issues. We're going to talk about national issues we're going to talk about state issues we're going to talk about local issues and then we're going to talk about some lighter stuff as well so we will cover the waterfront in the course of the next couple hours let me start off the program by channeling my inner clark howard if there is one piece of advice that i give you today and you don't you ignore all the other advice i give that that's fine but but take this one to heart there's a story in the local newspaper talking about how for the next 10 days or so, travelers will be able to sign up for TSA pre-check at Mitchell International Airport. And the, the what you'll do is that you can just go right to the airport and you can make an appointment online and you can sign up and you can get your TSA pre-check. And the application fee for t- pre-check is 78 bucks for five years. And the, the story gives you the, the things that you need, preferably a passport and stuff like that. I think TSA pre-check is a great thing, but but here let me channel my inner Clark Howard with you. What what TSA pre-check lets you do is it lets you get into that special line at the airport, and it lets you kind of move through a little bit faster. Sometimes there's a lot of people in the pre-check line as well, but it lets you move through the line faster. And, And this is the important thing: if you got TSA pre-check. You don't have to take off your belts or shoes. You don't have to remove your computer from your bag, all that sort of stuff. It makes life much, much easier if you fly at all. And it's a bargain at 78 bucks. But here is my piece of advice to you. If you are thinking about doing that, spend an extra $22. Do yourself a favor. Don't get TSA pre-check. Get global entry global entry now it's issued you, you got to go to like homeland security so you don't go to the airport you got to make an appointment it's at the offices right next door to the airport on i think it's howell and layton you got to make an appointment but global entry which is a hundred bucks for five years allows you all the different advantages of of tsa I mean, so the global entry card, you have TSA pre-check, so whenever you're flying domestically, you you get to get in that TSA pre-check line, and and that's great. But here's the other thing. For that extra 22 bucks, if you ever are traveling outside of the country and you're coming back into the country, you get to go into the special global entry card lines. And I am telling you, you you know, if you've ever, like, for example, come through customs, coming back from somewhere in, in Chicago, sometimes that line can be two hours long. And you can be just standing there, and you've just gotten off a plane from wherever, and you're standing there, and you're standing there. If you've got the global entry card, you go to this kind of special area, you, you put your information in, and boom, you, you pretty much go right through. So if you saw this story in the paper, and you say, oh, that TSA pre-check's a pretty good deal, it, it is if you, if you fly at all. I'm telling you, 
the best $100 you can spend, in my opinion, is if there is any chance that you are going to be traveling overseas in the course of the next five years. I, go go spend the extra 20 bucks, get the global entry card. You will thank me for it if you're ever coming in. Now, I understand may, maybe there's going to be people who say, well, I, I, I don't need it. It's a waste. There's no way. There's, I'm never going to be going overseas. I'm never going to need to come back through customs. Oh, okay. Well, if you're sure of that, uh, then, then go with the TSA pre-check. I get it. And I'm not down on TSA pre-check. I'm just telling you global entry, in my opinion, is the way to go. And you never know when you might decide we're looking at doing another Wagner cruise in September of 2024. Maybe you want to come along with me on that. We're, we're, you know, maybe it's that you, you go to Europe. Maybe it's that you, know, you go down to Mexico. Whatever that is, just spend that extra 22 bucks. You've got to go through, a, I don't know, it's more hoops. It's a couple different hoops. But take it from me. Global entry is really the way to go. Jeff, global entry is the best purchase I ever made. You won't miss connections coming back into the country. My kids traveled with me recently. It took them 45 minutes longer to go through customs and immigration than me. Uh, Jeff, global entry, let's see, um, brilliant advice to frequent travelers. See, this is something we should all agree on. Jeff, Good advice. I agree completely. And I do miss Clark Howard and his quirky voice. So I'm channeling a little bit of my inner Clark Howard here because I, I saw the story of uh, in, in the paper. And again, it's it's saying get the TSA pre-check. I say get the TSA pre-check if you want. But my advice is if there's any chance at all that you might ever leave the country, spend that extra $22, get the global entry you will thank me when you get off that plane after you've had the long flight back from Frankfurt, Germany, and you've been on the plane for eight hours, and all you want to do is just get home, and you get to that customs line in Chicago, and it looks like it's two hours long. Trust me, if you've got that global entry card, I, I can't guarantee you that you're going to get by and right away, but my guess is I've never waited in a line for longer than 15 minutes with a global entry card. Trust me, you will be happy. You will get on your way a lot sooner. Life will be easier, and you can think back. I remember I was listening to that Jeff Wagner guy that, Jan that cold January afternoon, and he told us, spend that extra $22, get the global entry card, best deal you will ever make. All right. Okay. Let's, a lot of people are agreeing about global entry. Jeff, totally agree about global entry. Great advice. I was a TSA pre-check agent. Um, yes. Okay, so here's the deal. You will remember, oh, it was about 10 months ago, right after the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin, there was all this, this controversy. And, and Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, he, you know, has a press conference after the Ukrainian president Zelensky had addressed Congress. And, you know, Graham comes on and he says, look, I support Biden's current approach to this. I support Zelensky's request to get, you know, MiG-29 uh, fighter jets from Poland. And then he, he says that he thinks somebody in Russia needs to take Putin out. Oh, he said he said they need to take Putin out. And then, you know, reporters followed up and, and they said, are, are you, you serious that you, you think he should take him out? And Graham said, yeah, I hope he will be taken out one way or the other. I don't care how they take him out. I don't care if we send him to The Hague and try him. I just want him to go. Yes, I'm on record. It's time for him to go. He's a war criminal. I wish someone had taken out Hitler in the 1930s. 
because that's what he says. And then there's all this uproar. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Somebody would suggest that you take out Vladimir Putin. Well, I remember after that, we, we did a couple shows where my question to you was, okay, this is what Lindsey Graham said. Are we... Are we really offended? And if so, why? Does anybody disagree with the sentiment that that he's offering? He considers Vladimir Putin to be a war criminal. He thinks the world would be a better place if Putin was out of power. And, you know, how how he gets out of power? Well, okay, you know, people can decide. But there was all this outrage. Oh, this is terrible. And my point was, wait, isn't Lindsey Graham really just saying what, what everybody is thinking? That, you know, Vladimir Putin, the world would be a better place. If Vladimir Putin had been taken out, for example, um, I think you can make an argument that there would be that this economic destruction. Maybe there wouldn't have been an invasion of Ukraine in the first place. There shouldn't have, there certainly wouldn't have been the tens of thousands of deaths of innocent civilians or, or soldiers. And the world wouldn't be on the precipice of disaster if you can make that argument if Vladimir Putin had been, quote-unquote, taken out, however that would have been. So we had this conversation about, well, for everybody that's offended, are you really offended, or is it just, oh, we're supposed to be offended by what the guy said? I was thinking about that story. once When we have this local story now about the the Brookfield Alderman, and this is getting a lot of attention. I know John McCure talked about it yesterday. Now, Now, here's the deal. In Brookfield, last November... The Common Council approved final plans for an affordable housing project. And it's out in in Bishop's Woods, which is kind of that area in Brookfield, sort of off the the freeway there. And they they approved, by 8 to 6, a 203-unit, they they call it the Flats at Bishop Woods. And it was very, very controversial at the time, but it was signed off on. It it was passed by the Common Council, so it is, in fact, going to happen. The Flats at Bishop Woods are are funded by a state grant, and what they're doing is it's going to offer, quote-unquote, affordable housing, which is priced at $400 less than the city of Brookfield average. Housing qualifies as affordable when it doesn't exceed 30% of a household's earned income. Okay, so it's it's quote-unquote affordable housing. It is a done deal, so that might be relevant to what happens. But you have a, a Brookfield alderman who is not happy with this. And so uh, the alderman opposed it. His name is Chris Seals. He opposed it. In the first place, and then there was a hearing the other night that was pretty much pro forma because it's already been signed off on, but he continued to uh, oppose it. And his comments were, and I'm quoting now, if you can't afford those units, then you live in Wauwatosa or West Dallas until you can afford to move into Brookfield. We don't step down to allow the people who can't afford to live in Brookfield because then we become West Dallas or we become Wauwatosa. That's not what Brookfield is. I've been here for 60 years. This is not Brookfield. So he's saying, look, affordable housing, we should not have it in our community. Now, the truth of the matter is it's a done deal. So, you know, this is kind of flogging a a dead horse to to bring up this issue because it's going to be a factor. And to throw in the the digs at Wauwatosa and at West Dallas, 
it, you kind of like like roll your eyes because there's lots of really nice places in Wauwatosa. And there's really lots of nice places in West Dallas. And if you want to identify problems that exist in Wauwatosa, I'm not really sure you can trace it to affordable housing. But his basic sentiment is that, well, I don't think affordable housing is good for the community. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. That's the aspect of this that I want to discuss. Again, the the dig at Wauwatosa, the dig at West Allis, I I think that's ill-considered at best and extremely unfair to people who live in Wauwatosa and people who live in West Allis. But I want to talk about the, the overall sentiment, his argument that affordable housing is not good for our community. What do you think about that? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Hey, Wisconsin, it might be cold out there right now, but soon it's going to be warming up and you need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank, your simply local equal housing common sense lender. You can use a loan to cover home improvement costs and beyond anything you need to fund. You can start your easy online application in minutes at greatmidwestbank.com. It's the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. I, I Look, this controversy involving this, this Brookfield Alderman who opposes this affordable housing, and affordable housing is different than low-income housing, but he opposes this affordable housing you know, project in, in Brookfield. Now, he, he fought it. He lost. This, he continues, though, to, to say, look, you know, I, I don't think this is good for our particular community. And, you know, I, I think if, you know, we, we do this, we're going to turn ourselves into Waukesha or to Wauwatosa or West Allis. Why you need to bring those communities in is, is I, I think, unnecessary and it's a cheap shot and it creates more controversy. But the overall concept of, of quote unquote, affordable housing, are we now at a point where we, we can't we can't have a discussion as to whether or not that's good for the community? And I guess my take on it is, although it was expressed in a very admittedly ham handed fashion, I think in some respects he is saying what some people think, what probably many people think. 855-616-1620. Um, uh, Jeff, it's pretty well established that increased poverty results in increased crime. Going out of your way as a city to import more poverty seems to me like a bad idea. Communities pushing for development of affordable housing only makes sense if there are no affordable housing options within a reasonable driving difference. Jeff, I think the councilmen should be directed to take a course on implicit and explicit bias. Well, that's, I mean, see, that's where you got to be careful with this because you, you it, when, when you oppose this, you leave yourself open to violations of like the Fair Housing Act if your remarks are interpreted as a pretext that, you know, you're really not talking about low-income people, you're talking about keeping persons of color or whatever out. Um, so you got to be really careful when you say that. Jeff, I think affordable housing rapidly increases population in the community. Not sure if the infrastructure is there to support the growth. Growth, example being the uh, the the number of school enroll school enroll enrollment in the community, larger class sizes or new schools come after 
that. Um, Jeff, nothing against affordable housing, but these developers make big income from them. I'm tired of having developers and high developers and deeply subsidized developments build some entry level owner occupied housing, which is what is really needed everywhere. Jeff, I think affordable housing is a good fit next to the Blue Mound shopping corridor. And that's why, by the way, I take no position on this particular development, which is it's it is a done it is a done deal. And I don't have a problem with affordable housing in general. At the same time, I just I don't think I think communities have every right to take a, a hard look at this. I mean, let's talk about an uncomfortable truth. We all know about the demise of Northridge Shopping Center. There were a lot of reasons why Northridge, which was a thriving shopping center, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and in the 90s, it was a thriving shopping center. And there's all sorts of reasons it went downhill. But you talk to a lot of people in that area, and they will tell you that one of the reasons they believed that Northridge went downhill was when you had the this explosion of low-income housing that was in the area. Now, that might be an uncomfortable truth, and people might not like say it, but there's a lot of really smart people who believe that that was not the only factor, but it was a factor in contributing to that. Now, again, I don't, I, I don't know enough about this this project that they're talking about that to you know comment on that. And and this isn't this isn't low-income housing. I mean, you get into the you you, know, you can be talking about people who are making middle-class incomes who are going to qualify to live in there, and you do have that that shopping development. So this might be a perfect sort of thing that's there. But I think, you know, you're having all this outrage that somebody even dares to question, you know, whether or not an affordable housing project is good for the community. I guess that's kind of that's my issue that I think it's it's fair for him to at least say, look, we we have to take a look at this. Now, he did it, like I say, in a ham handed way, and he probably deserves all the criticism that he is getting for the way he approached it and the the digs at West Allis and the digs at Wauwatosa and things like that. But. I think think every time a developer comes along and says, hey, I want to build an affordable housing project in a particular community, it's fair for the community to take a hard look at it and decide, is this, does this fit what the model is for our community moving forward? Now, in Brookfield, like I say, it was a heated debate. Last November, 8 to 6, the Common Council decided to go ahead and do it. So it's effectively been a done deal. So that it doesn't make any sense to relitigate these battles. And the way the older person did it, again, ham-handed. But I don't think that this should automatically mean that everybody should automatically say anytime there is a quote-unquote affordable housing the project that comes along as proposed for a community that you automatically have to say yes to it there's lots of factors that go into it including what is the nature of this what is the density of the community where is it going to be etc 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 i i I use this reference a lot. I, I'm not sure he's he's the first one that said it, but former President Lyndon Johnson always used to. One of his favorite quotations in his own inimitable style was, "Don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining." And of course, that's not exactly what he said, but you get the general idea. Um, I, I just I, I've always found that to be a useful statement because we keep having people who have different agendas tell us stuff, and they tell us stuff over and over again, and collectively we accept this and say oh okay this is this is going to be the case and then it never turns out to be the case but then nobody ever comes back in and, and says i told you so classic example of that is of course the the hop 
the 2.1 mile streetcar line that when it was built, and this is not going to be a conversation about the hop, but when Tom Barrett pushed it through, we spent all this money and we were told, oh, it's going to, we're going to charge a dollar and we're going to have all these riders on it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been pretty much of a flop. We, we don't charge any money for it at all. So the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee have to pay to operate this giant air trolley. Um, it's a situation where it wouldn't come close. It, it, it's way underperforming its ridership estimates, and it would have hardly any riders if we charged money. And the ridership estimates that we originally got were based on charging. So it, it was based on, hey, this is how many riders we get if people are going to have to pay a buck or whatever. Well, now we, we've all, they've even thrown out the idea of charging a dime for it because they know that regardless of how few people are riding the hop now, they know if they made people pay even a quarter, people would not ride this. But again, we, we had these like pie-in-the-sky estimates of the number of people who are going to ride it. And then, of course, you, you move to the second phase. Well, okay, we acknowledge that nobody's riding this, but what we need to do is that's because it doesn't go anywhere. So we need to spend you know hundreds of millions of dollars trying to expand it so it goes here or there or the other, and then people will ride it. Well, okay, maybe, you know, maybe not, but the question becomes, where is that money? But nobody at the beginning stood up and said, these numbers are bogus. These are pie-in-the-sky, inflated numbers that are never going to be a reality. All right, I, I ask, before we double down on this project, whether, not the hop, but something else that is, I guess they, they got the federal money, so it is going to happen. But my question is going to be, is it going to be able to deliver? I'm talking about the bus rapid transit service between Milwaukee and and Wauwatosa. Now, this has been kicking around for years. It's been the subject of one delay after another. But the latest estimate is now they expect that in June, what they are calling the Connect will, in fact, you know, start taking riders. The Connect starts on the Lower East Side, kind of by the lake, and it will run out to the Medical College of Wisconsin. It goes down Wisconsin Avenue and switches over and goes down Blue Mound Road for a, a while. That's, that's the, that is the pattern of it. It costs two bucks to ride. It will, if fully operational, and it's, you've already seen this. They're, they're taking away lanes of traffic for this. It's going to make, you know, some people and businesses, it's going to be, make it more difficult to get into their businesses, etc. But this, this connect, it's an electric bus. So, okay, we, we've got, that satisfies the eco-warriors that are out there. And it's going to run, again, if you take the entire route that, by the way, right now is serviced by bus lines, they say that this will knock off about eight minutes. Okay, about eight minutes on the trip. So if the trip took, you know, 25 minutes before, it'll now take like 18, 17 or 18 minutes. So it knocks off a few minutes. That is if you are taking the the trip the whole way out there. The estimate is, and, and this is the stuff that keeps getting reported over and over again, is that once the quote unquote connect gets started, it is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread or canned beer. And they estimate that by 2035, the Connect will have more than 9,500 daily riders. In other words, the ridership will just absolutely explode because people are going to start using this bus to go out to Wauwatosa from the city or, or back and forth. 
Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, this this is a done deal. And, and these were the numbers that were thrown around. Hey, you save a few minutes, and that's going to be enough to inspire everybody who's going to want to take the bus to, to do this. Th- that's the selling point. Now, the next thing they're trying to sell us is a quote-unquote not-so-high-speed bus line that's going to run from Oak Creek up to Bayshore that's going to cost a ton more than this does. But I just want to tee this first thing up. 855-616-1620. The claim is in the next 10 years, this electric bus that would get you, if you rode the whole line, it would get you from one end to the other eh, in about 8 to 10 minutes faster than taking the regular bus. Is that worth tens of millions of dollars? And will that really be a motivating people, a motivating thing that says, well, you know, normally I was going to, gee, I live in, in Shorewood or I live on the Lower East Side and I've got to drive out to a doctor's appointment, you know, in, in Wauwatosa. So, but instead of, instead of that, now that I've got this high speed bus line, which means that I can save a couple minutes, I'm going to drive from my home to wherever I pick up the bus, and then I'm going to pick up the bus, and I'm going to take it out, and then I'm going to walk from wherever the bus drives me off to wherever my appointment is. Is that really going to be something which is going to cause all sorts of people to say, gee, I'm saving a couple minutes, so what I'm going to do is now give up my car and take a walk? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Hop on the bus, because you don't need to discuss my... 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, one of our commentators said, well, I mean, you you got to understand, you, you don't have to fool around with parking downtown. You can take the bus. Well, yeah, but you still have to drive to wherever it is that you're going to get the bus out in Wauwatosa, and you're going to have to find a spot to park there unless you live right on, on this bus line. Similarly, um, you're going to have to drive somewhere and park somewhere downtown if you live, say, on the east side to pick up the bus line. But, I mean, here's the, here's the, the deal. Right now, a regular bus... 37 minutes, it's the gold line. That's what they estimate, 37 minutes to get from one end, the lakefront, to Wauwatosa. This high-speed rapid transit bus, 29 minutes. So so you knock off eight minutes. But is that really going to be the, the difference that, oh, I would never ride the bus because of all these reasons, but now it's going to get out there eight minutes sooner, so I'm going to ride it. I mean, in, in what reality do we do that? On top of that, I mean, here's the other thing, driving. Between the route's endpoints, Wisconsin Avenue at Van Buren and Watertown, Plank, Park and Ride, even at rush hour, you can drive in 15 minutes. So it's still taking the bus is, the high-speed bus, is twice as long as it would take to drive. And that's even at rush hour. Now you're talking about rush hour, and it's even sooner. My point, I guess, is that, you know, we we talk about all these estimates, and this is, as as the story is coming out, oh, the high-speed bus line is going to go up. Okay, fine, it's it's a done deal. That battle's been fought. But it's going to be 9,500 riders a day, you know, by 2035. My question is, where are these riders going to come from? I mean, seriously. James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. James. James, you're on the air. Yeah. Hi, uh, go ahead. Jeff, I think... I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a, worse than uh, Tommy's uh, little trolley that goes around and around and around. 
Um, well, I it's it's and thanks for calling, James. I mean, here, here's the only thing: it's cheaper. I mean, it is cheaper to build, and it's been cheaper to build, but at the same time, it's going to cost, the estimates are, it's going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of three-quarters of a million dollars more to operate on, on a regular, on a, on a yearly basis. So you, you've got that, that expense that is going to come with it. And look, I, I'm not anti-mass transit. I, I'm really not. But I, I wonder what makes sense. Did we need to do all this, or could you have just accomplished the same thing by saying, okay, we're, we're going to run the existing buses and we're going to adjust the lights or we're going to give, you know, some of these bus drivers the ability to to adjust the lights, to keep the green lights on longer or whatever. There's all sorts of stuff we could have done without investing in this infrastructure. But the same argument that's being made, oh, this is going to get, you know, uh, we're going to have huge ridership, 9,500 people in the next 10 years. Right now, that's being used to project to spending a lot more money tens of millions, maybe a hundred plus million dollars to do the same thing to try to create a bus line from again Oak Creek up to uh, Bayshore Town Center. And my point is before we spend all this money, and I don't care whether it's federal money or whether it's state money or whether it's local money, and again I understand this bus line, the vast majority came from federal money, but it's still our tax dollars. But the operating costs are going to have to come, you know, locally. That's where the dough is going to have to come from. So my, my question is, all right, shouldn't we really figure out, is this going to be a white elephant like the hop? Or do we just take these projections that I think many cases have no no um, a basis in reality. Jeff, parking, its availability, and the cost drives public transportation, not time. Y- yeah, and the truth of the matter is parking is still relatively easy to find. If you're going out to the medical college of Wisconsin, for example, the you know that, that complex, there, there's, there's plenty of parking. You end up parking in those parking lots. I mean, I just... I'm trying to imagine if I had to go out there for an appointment, am I going to drive out there so that when my appointment's done, I can leave at my convenience? Or am I going to drive to somewhere on the east side where I can then try to find a place to park my car on the street? I don't drive a Kia or a Hyundai, so there's a decent chance the car will be back when I get there, when I get back, and then you know, hop on the bus, take the bus out there, and then after my medical appointment, after I see the doc, get back, wait for a bus, come back, and then walk to wherever I parked my car. I just don't see that as it being a reality. Jeff, in a city where you have little to no traffic congestion and parking is free or cheap, these transit options are a complete non-starter. Um, we hear federal money as if it's not our money. Right. In, if, if this was downtown Chicago or downtown New York, I understand. People don't have cars in downtown New York because it's just so onerous to drive. So people take public transportation. They take the buses. They use a cab. Um, they, they jump on the subway. I understand that. But Milwaukee isn't, and southeastern Wisconsin right now, it's not Chicago. It's not New York. It's not going to be. People are going to continue, I think, to use their automobiles. Um, 855-616-1620. Um, let's see. Um, uh, Jeff, Milwaukee doesn't have the population density like a Chicago or New York. Seems like a gigantic waste of 
money. Jeff, the only thing that makes less sense than the Wisconsin Avenue uh, bus rapid transit would be a light rail line there, which I'm sure this is the first step towards that. You know, I, I think that there's something to that. I, I think and you, the officials would never admit this, but the idea is going to be, okay, well, now we've got these lanes that are all cleared out for the, the bus rapid transit, but, gee, you know, I know we projected 9,500 people, but nobody's riding. We're not getting close to that. So what we really need to do is we need to get rid of the buses because people will be happier if we have that commuter rail, that light rail, which will cost, you know, probably hundreds of millions of dollars to put in. I, I am not... I mean, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there was an element of that, that kind of stalking horse there. Jeff, I think the money spent on the rapid transit service would have been much better spent on bus shelter maintenance and appreciated by many more riders. Jeff, 9500 a day? I want to know what these guys are smoking when they come up with these estimates. Um, Jeff, our leaders have been very vocal lately about how broke the city is as a reason we can't do things that people want. And now our tax dollars have to cover the operating costs for this? Yes, they, they do. And by the way, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, your um, tax dollars uh, are also covering the cost of the operating fee for the air trolley, otherwise known as the hop. I think there's an element there. Jeff, Milwaukee has to decide, do they want to expand their population? In Chicago, people get to live 30 minutes outside the city and still get a ride by train. It saves gas. It's healthy to walk. It's good for your health. I don't believe, I don't believe a bus that gets you to Wauwatosa eight minutes faster is going to have any factor at all in deciding whether Milwaukee's population expands. I, I'm sorry, I, I just, I, I don't. Because for the people who choose to ride the bus, is it really, okay, well, boy, I, 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 if you already ride the bus, I get it. You know, if you can get there eight minutes faster, oh, sure, it's eight minutes more of your life. But if you're a person who's driving, the idea that, all right, I can now drive out there, I can save eight minutes over the current bus line, that's not going to motivate you to get in and take the bus. It's just flat out not going to do it. You are going to continue to drive. I mean, it's you look at study after study, and th- this is one of the problems you have with mass transit in an area that does not have population congestion or density like we do. Okay, you say, all right, well, we, we need to have all these mass transit systems to connect people with jobs in the suburbs or whatever. All right, fine. So you do that, and then you connect somebody with a job. Well, what's the first thing they do once they get that job in the suburb and start making a little bit of money? Wait for it. They buy a car because they want the freedom. They don't want to be tied into, gee, I, I have to I have to be outside my house at 7.15 to pick up the bus, and I have to ride the bus out to wherever I'm going. They, they want The first thing they do is they buy the car, once they get that job so they can drive back and forth so they can have control of their schedule. That's just the reality that ends up operating. And again, I'm not, I, I we're the big, but this rapid transit thing is a done deal. Lots of people opposed it, but the lure of federal money sold it. So, all right, we're going to have it. That's fine. But let's have an honest test of it. And don't be surprised if, I don't know. It's interesting that the projection is 10 years from now. It's going to be 9,500. So I guess we're not going to be able to say, I told you so, for another 10 years. But 
when they try to sell this thing, an even bigger one, an even more expensive one, from Oak Creek up to Bayshore Town Center in Glendale, maybe we can have a little bit more skepticism of the numbers. Just saying. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, maybe your life experience has been different than mine, but I generally find that when there is a problem, if you simply ignore it, 95% of the time, the problem does not go away. And it almost always get worse. gets worse. Now, there, there might be exceptions to that, but if you've got, I don't know, you've got a leak, leak under your sink, and you say, oh, boy, the, the sink is leaking, I'm just going to ignore it. Well, chances are that leak is not going to fix itself, and in all likelihood, it's going to get worse. If you've got a leaky roof, all right, gee, I, I just, you know, maybe the, the roof gods will look down and smile and it'll stop, but chances are it's going to get worse, right? And I think that applies to most things. If you've got a problem and you just delay it, okay, that problem doesn't get better. And while you're, you know, stalling to try to deal with that problem, something else happens too. So then you got two problems that you have to deal with. So my point is by just ignoring problems, you do not make things better. And by demonizing people who try to come up with solutions, all you do is beclown yourself. I was watching this thing the other day on television, and maybe you, you saw it. Joy Reid, who is the MSNBC host, who's this big-time liberal and, you know, um, often wrong but never in doubt. She gets into an argument with Representative Brian Donalds from Florida. He's a, a Republican who represents Southwest Florida. And they're talking about Social Security. And so one of the things that Donald says, Representative Donald says, is, look, you know, we've got this... We're going to, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to use our Republican majority and we're going to take a hard look at entitlement spending because without doing anything, Social Security is going to be insolvent by 2035. That same time that the people tell us we're going to have 9,500 people, you know, riding the uh, high-speed bus in Milwaukee. He says, look, by 2035, it's going to be insolvent. Reed jumps and says, that's not true. He says, yeah, I, I got the math here. It is true. She says, nope, nope, nope. It's actually not true. But as the Wall Street Journal notes, it is. There's a Congressional Research Service report from last year that says the combined Social Security trust funds will become depleted in 2035. The Congressional Budget Office they say spending on Social Security exceeds revenues to the program beginning in 22 and increases relative to GPD over the next 75 years. If combined, the program's trust funds would be exhausted in 2033. So 2035, 2033, that, that's what the numbers are. And for people, let's take a step back, and I'm, I'm sure you understand how Social Security works, but it, Social Security is not like your personal bank account where you know you've been saving x amount of dollars every two weeks out of your paycheck or uh, every month you put in a few hundred dollars and there is an account under your name at old national bank and it's got fifty thousand dollars in it okay that's that's not how social security works you do not have an account with the federal government that has fifty thousand dollars set aside you have a credit 
from the federal government. Because what happens is the money that you pay in, that I pay in, that we who are working pay in and contribute to Social Security, that goes in. We get credit for it, but it's not in our own account. And the money we pay in now is used to pay the benefits of the people who are currently on Social Security. And so the idea is that by the time you or I get ready to start taking our Social Security, there will be other people who will be in the workforce and they will be paying in and they'll essentially, because we've paid in all our life, you know, they will be essentially paying the benefits that we get. And presumably when they retire in 20 or 30 years, there will be a new class of workers who will pay for them. That's the way that Social Security works. The problem, though, is that as the number of people in the workforce diminish, as there's fewer people for a variety of reasons who are working, and because people are living longer, they are collecting more in Social Security, you get to a point now, and we've already reached that point, where the amount of money that is being paid into Social Security by those of us who are working is not large enough to cover the amount that is being paid to the people who are collecting Social Security. So you're kind of, you've got deficit spending. Now, for Social Security, there, there is this surplus amount of money that, that's out there. So it's kind of like, you know, savings that you can, you can draw on. If you have, I don't know, $100,000 in the bank and your spending is $120,000, say, you know, you can sustain that lifestyle, you know, if you're making some money, by drawing money out of your bank account. But sooner or later, you're going to run out of that money. Well, Social Security is getting to a point where unless something is done in the next 10 or 12 years, the amount of money coming in plus the amount of money that was left in Social Security isn't going to be large enough to meet the obligations of people. So then you've got just a, a sto- I mean, you, you want to talk about a mess. I mean, you, you've, you've got, I mean, you've got a mess with hair on it. I mean, there's just no question about it because then you have all these people who've depended on Social Security, they've paid into it all their life, and they're saying, well, wait, what, what's going to happen here? Um, are you going to, are my benefits going to be reduced? Um, I have to live, get by with like 25% less? I paid in all my life. You mean to tell me that this, this money that I was told I was going to get, I'm not going to be able to get? It's, it is a problem. And sticking your head in the sand and pretending that it is not a problem seems to me to be irresponsible in, in the extreme. It, it, it just does. But because anytime you want to talk about dealing with the entitlements, with the whole thing with Social Security, it immediately becomes, oh, you've got this evil politician who wants to, you know, put old people out on, on an iceberg and, like, send them off, you know, into the North Sea. Or, you know, you want to have, you know, grandma and grandpa eating, you know, cat food and things like that, when the reality is it's a financial crisis and it, it's coming right at us and we have to end up dealing with stuff and to demonize people who say hey we've got to take a look at this seems to me to be wrong so what do we do and this is what i want to talk about in this segment our number 855-616-1620 which is the old national bank talk and text line i mean i guess there's a couple things you know one is we can start cutting the amount of benefits that people get um secondly 
we can perhaps extend the retirement age, you know, end up making people work longer. Three, we can increase the Social Security taxes or increase the, the threshold. Right now, it, once you once you make one hundred and forty seven grand, that that's where it, it caps out for Social Security, not for Medicare, but for Social Security. So we could say, OK, well, for people who make a hundred two hundred thousand dollars they'll have to continue paying till they hit up to the two thousand dollars so you could make those people pay more eight five five six one six one six twenty that is the old national bank talk and text line all right is this a problem that we should be talking about and i think the answer to that is is yeah regardless of where you are on the political spectrum it's something that we have to discuss but then the more difficult question is what do we do to fix this what do we do to fix it? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I, I was watching this, this debate between the very liberal MSNBC host and a conservative congressman who w- was saying, look, I mean, here's the reality of what's looking at Social Security. And us pretending that there is not a problem doesn't doesn't solve this. We've got to look at what's going on with entitlements. And for those of you who, if you've been following the international news, I mean, they've got, like last week, they had over a million people that were in France protesting because, I mean, France is, again, one of these, it's the giant nanny state, and France is looking at increasing the retirement age from 62 to 64 by 2030, and people are, I mean, people are in the street. I mean, it's like the French Revolution. How dare you extend the retirement age another two years? Um, all these people are protesting, but that's because you've got these, these giant welfare states that you've created in these European countries, and the problem is, as people age, and then they're not replaced by as many young workers. These these giant entitlement areas, these entitlement states, they, they become unsustainable. You're looking at that happening with Social Security. So what do we do? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Joe in Mequon. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, and thanks for taking my call. This has been a hot button for me for a number of years. Uh, the government borrowed, I believe, it was two point six billion dollars from social security with an iou to pay it back never has and in the paper today uh on the second page of the journal sentinel if you read the article on social security going broke uh, it also says that they are taking money from social security to put in the general fund leave the money alone for the people that have paid in i paid into the government for 50 years if they'd like to give me all my money back and that I've invested and I will invest it myself, I will be fine. I think it's a hoax on the government's point of view. It's going broke. It's only going broke because the government does not know how to keep it in Social Security fund, but keep going ahead and borrowing money from that fund for other projects. Thanks for the call. I, I appreciate the perspective on this. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting. I, look, I'm not an advocate of privatizing Social Security. I think that that raises a whole other issue. But here's here's here is the kind of the facts of this. All right. Let's say just since 2006, 
the Standard & Poor's 500 has had a 309% return. And um, that translates to nearly 9% a year. The um, Social Security recipients, um, the annual rate of return has been about 6%. So actually, you know, from a purely financial perspective, people like George Bush, who even, you know, decided, you know, maybe we need to talk about privatizing Social Security and giving people that option. The, the truth is that they were right. I mean, at least if, if you had privatized and just allowed people to, like, invest in the S&P 500, they their return would have been 3% greater than with Social Security. But I, I do, look, I understand. I think that's probably a, a bridge too far at this point in time. But the truth of the matter is we have to have this discussion. Jeff, I agree. Let's tighten up entitlements. Um, Social Security is not an entitlement. I paid for it. Um, well, it's an entitlement in the term, the sense that, you know, people are entitled to it. That's where that, that phrase comes from. But look, I don't, I don't see, I don't see cutting benefits as an option. I, I just don't. You, if you are retired now or you are within 15 years of retirement and you've been in paying into Social Security all your life and I'm, I'm in that category, there is this expectation. There is this promise that has been made to you that, all right, you've done your part. Now you can, you know, base your retirement on assuming that there are going to be certain levels of returns. I don't think you can come in and say, well, okay, we're not going to do what we have promised you to do, or you've got other money, so you don't need it as badly as somebody else. So here, you know, we're going to means test, and we're going to take some of your assets away from you. We're not going to give you as much. That That's nuts. You know, everybody is paid into it. Everybody deserves to get the dough back. Now, what I do think you're going to have to do, and I think one thing they're going to have to look at is – just like with Medicare, there, there's no there's no point in Medicare where you stop contributing. I mean, you pay whatever that Medicare percentage is. You pay based on on your income. So if it's uh, whatever the number is, it, you know, it, you you don't unlike Social Security that caps off at one hundred and forty seven thousand. You pay into Medicare. I think that's one of the things that they are going to look at doing saying hey we're not going to put any sort of limits on this but regardless of what your answer is don't we have to have this conversation let's talk to um let's see jimmy and racine jimmy you're on wtmj all right thanks for taking my call sure two things uh we're we're doing what we need to do we need to talk about it more we need to have more conversation shows like this need to bring this stuff to people's understanding what exactly Social Security is about, how does it actually function. The average life expectancy was 61 years old when Social Security was, was founded, and mm-hmm. there was a 5 to 1 ratio of 5 workers to 1 beneficiary. Today, people are living a lot longer, and there's only a 2 to 1 ratio to people working to 1 beneficiary. So obviously there's a deficiency there. And secondly, there's ways that we can make, I think we can increase our contributions to Social Security and Medicare and on the backside, maybe decrease our income taxes to, to make it a little bit more pliable for people, like decrease it 4%, mm-hmm. maybe decrease our federal income tax by 2%. Some way like that. State of Wisconsin's got $7 billion projected for a surplus. They could do the same thing, increase the beneficiary, decrease to that for SSI, decrease the income tax. There's ways to work around it so that people don't feel a big ditch on this for the time being. But sooner or later, we're going to have to pay more. Yeah, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for calling. I, I think I, I I could not agree more. And I look, I I don't know what the best option of this is. Although I I do think 
you're, you're going to have to raise the, the income taxes, the, the, uh, the, the income cap on Social Security that, that people are, are paying into. I think that's, that is one of these inevitable things. But I guess what I wanted to do in this segment is I, I just I wish politicians would grow up. And, and I wish some, in, in this case, you know, some. I, I understand that there's there, there's hay to be made. All right, this this is how we score political points, and this has been going on my entire lifetime. Oh, so and so wants to cut Social Security. So and so wants your grandmother eating, you know, cat food or whatever. All right, we, you have to have a, a conversation. You can't keep doing the same thing and, and say, okay, this is unsustainable. The CBO says Social Security is going to like run out of money in 2033. All right, well, what we should be talking about this and having an honest conversation about it in 2023 so it doesn't get to that point. So people who have depended on Social Security and people who are retired and people who are close to being retirement don't have to worry about, gee, you know, I – I've been looking at the numbers, and I'm expecting that I'm going to get $2,500 a month from Social Security, whatever that dollar amount is. And, and that's, okay, based on, based on that and whatever else I have and my savings, I am now prepared to, to retire. Well, okay, maybe the stock market takes a dump, and you can't draw as much out of your retirement account as you thought. All right, that's something. But when it comes to Social Security and the government promises, you shouldn't have to worry about the things that the government told you that you were going to get that you had paid into all your life is suddenly going to be cut by 10% or 20% or 30%. We owe the citizens of this country more, don't we? Interesting conversation, hopefully not too dry. It's a significant issue, and we need to talk about it, and we need to talk about it away from the 30-second the political attack ads. We, we need to say, okay, this it, it, it's, it's a problem. It's kind of like when you, you know, your, your, your budget is out of control, and you've got all these different expenses. And like I say, my experience is, generally speaking, ignoring problems does not make them better. And so just like, you know, if you're... You're sitting there and, you know, you're you're spending way beyond your means. You can keep doing it, but sooner or later, it's you're going to crash and burn. So why don't we try to fix something before we get to that stage? Just saying. All right. Do I have your attention? Yeah. Let me share with you. A story, I will read it almost verbatim, as it appears on the TMJ4 website. New job with the city of Milwaukee hopes to tackle reckless driving. The Vision Zero Policy Director. The Vision Zero Policy Director will lead the city's efforts towards achieving the goal of eliminating all fatalities and serious injuries from traffic violence. That That is the goal. No deaths, no serious injuries. As part of the city of Milwaukee's commitment to Vision Zero, the goal of achieving zero traffic deaths, it's looking for a person to lead this effort. The Vision Series, the Vision Zero policy director will, quote, lead the city's efforts towards achieving the goal of eliminating all fatalities and serious injuries from traffic violence, be the city's leader in coordinating comprehensive systems-level approaches to this goal, and work across city departments with community members and organizations to advance initiatives related to Vision Zero. All right. 
Um, we have a huge issue with reckless driving we've been working on to address, says the mayor. So we need someone who understands that and understands our desire to increase safety on the roadways in Milwaukee. Someone who understands pedestrians, bicyclists, scooter riders, stroller pushers, all those folks deserve the same kind of access to roadway usage. The city is hoping for highly qualified candidates with a <clears throat> progressive view on how to make a serious impact on the city streets. The ideal person is someone who understands the challenges we have on the ground in Milwaukee, Johnson said. Someone who can create unique service models and delivery to increase safety on the street for all users of the roadways. It's a big ask of the person looking to step up. As part of Vision Zero's efforts to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injury crashes, the strategies implemented by this person will look to reverse what has been among the worst years for traffic-related deaths in the county's history. And then it goes on to talk about how people are just dying willy-nilly on the roadway. Okay, here's the operative thing that caught my attention. The suggested starting salary for the person charged with eliminating traffic deaths and serious injuries. Um, it originally had it been it had been suggested at fifty three thousand nine hundred and fifty seven dollars. Fifty three thousand nine fifty seven. However, that has been revised. So if you are going to be the person that comes in tasked with eliminating traffic fatalities and serious injuries on the city roadways, the starting suggested salary is ninety three thousand two hundred ninety seven dollars. to be the Vision Zero Policy Director. Okay, I want to try to save the city of Milwaukee some money. Let us say, my question to you is, let us say that you are going to apply for that job. And the city of Milwaukee says, okay, we're going to give you 93 grand to start. That's the suggested started salary. And, And we... We want to task you with reducing and or, I mean, the goal is no traffic fatalities, no serious injuries. That's what the, the goal is. But we want to task you with trying to get a handle on all the carnage that is going on in the roadways. And we're looking for somebody who's got progressive ideas, and we, we want to be sensitive to walkers and strollers and bicyclists and, and all those different types of things. But, all right, you are interviewing with Cavalier Johnson. You would like to make the ninety-three grand. See, I don't think some stuff is really hard. I'm not sure that this necessarily is. What is the number one thing? What is the first thing that you would do if you were the Vision Zero policy director towards, and the goal is to start eliminating traffic fatalities and getting a handle on serious injuries, where do you start? What's number one on your list? For me, it, it's it's pretty easy, and I'm not even going to charge the city $93,297 to share with you, but where would you start I'll tell you right start as well. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Yeah, the so the, the in Milwaukee, the, the head of the Office of Violence Pretend, Prevention, you know, how's that been working out? Makes north of a hundred grand a year. So this is now going to be a newly created position, the Vision Zero Policy Director, who's going to be tasked with eliminating traffic fatalities and serious traffic injuries in the city of Milwaukee. The original salary was fifty-four grand, approximately. Now it's been bumped up to north of 93000 which makes me wonder, 
I hate to be cynical, but it makes me wonder whether there's somebody they have in mind for the particular gig. But okay, here's my question. You you know, you decide you want to apply for that $93,297 a year job. You're sitting across the, the table from Mayor Cavalier Johnson, and he says, okay, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? Now, first of all, I think we could make an argument that the, we hire the mayor to figure out how you're going to do all these different types of things. I would argue that's the mayor's job. But what's, what is your suggestion? What do you say to the mayor that gets you this job? Let's start with Guy in Brookfield. Guy, you're on WTMJ. Yes, wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, Keller Johnson uh, first point man on uh, crime in uh, the city? Yep, you would think. He was yep. the point guy on crime for the city. And I will tell you this. It's as simple as this. Prosecute these people. I, you, th- I, you know, no, Guy, thanks for the call. I, you know, Guy, I, I just, you and I are on the same wavelength. And see, because here's, here is, here's the simple solution. You don't need a vision zero policy director. What you need is somebody who simply says, all right, are we committed to trying to reduce traffic deaths and fatalities and stuff? Well, what, what is what is primarily causing it? Where, where does the majority of this stuff come from? Well, it comes from reckless driving. It comes from car theft and then people fleeing from the police. It comes from drunken driving. It comes from, uh, again, a... It all comes down to most of this stuff is centered around crime, reckless driving, fleeing the cops, etc. To me, I'm sitting across the desk from the mayor, and he says, okay, Jeff, what are you going to do? And I'm going to say, Here, here's the deal. And by the way, I'm not sure that you really need somebody in this job, but I am going to use this bully pulpit if you hire me, and we're going to push to get the bad guys off the streets. We're going to start taking this stuff seriously. We're not going to say, oh, you steal a car and you drive away at 85 miles an hour, and we're going to, gee, you're 14 years old and you've done this, and this time you just, by the grace of God, didn't kill somebody, so we're going to put you back out on the street again. You don't need a $93,000 a year policy wonk to sit there and say, well, maybe we need this or maybe we need that. What you need is somebody to make a commitment to say, let's figure out where a lot of this problem is coming from. And it's real simple. You've got these criminals that are off the street. You get the car thieves off the street. You get the reckless drivers off the street. You get the people who are running from the cops off the streets. You get the drug dealers who are fleeing when they're operating their mobile drug house. It's not rocket science. If you really are serious about dealing with the carnage that is going on in the Milwaukee roadways, look, I understand that you can you can quit you can nibble around the edges on stuff. You can say, okay, we're going to put in speed bumps here or there. You can say we're going to uh, turn. We're going to use flashing red lights, an idea that I don't think is very is I don't think it's a bad one. You know, from ten at night till six in the morning in, in intersections, you can say, okay, maybe we should put in some red light cameras. You, you could come around with all those different ideas, but at the end of the day, traffic safety and eliminating or substantially reducing the number of fatalities and the number of people who are seriously injured starts with getting the irresponsible criminal drivers off the street. And we don't need to spend 93 grand to do that. 
You, you just flat out don't. You need a mayor who's going to stand up and say, look, I'm going to do more than give this lip service. You need a police chief, and I actually like the police chief, Jeff Donald. You need a police chief who says, okay, we're going to double our resources. We're going to arrest people. You need a district attorney who's going to commit to actually prosecuting people and not this catch-and-release, turn-em-loose thing. And you need a court system where the judges are going to commit to saying, okay, th- this is a big deal. You've just stolen your fourth car. You've led the police on a high-speed chase. We're getting you off the street because if we just put you back out on the street, we know just as sure as night follows day that you're going to steal a fifth car. And this time when you run from the cops and you blow through that red light, you might just hit that 46-year-old man who happens to be on his first date with this woman and be in the wrong place at the wrong time. All these highfalutin goals, you, you don't need this job you need a commitment to law enforcement and getting the bad guys off the street, you know, period. Um, Jeff, I called City Hall today complaining twice about um, the different um, roads. The only solution for criminal Milwaukee is more police officers. Jeff, just what Milwaukee needs, no real solutions to problems and more money for bureaucracy. Another reason to move. Jeff. I would start impounding vehicles if the drivers have more than one reckless driving ticket and speeding over 15 miles an hour or on a suspended license or as unpaid fines. As we have talked about before, the congregation says, you know, amen. But I love this idea. We're going to take $93,000, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to come up with progressive ideas as to how to handle that. Jeff, I do the job for fifty grand, and the first thing I do is start lobbying relentlessly for the state legislature and the governor to pass new laws related to reckless driving, car theft, carjacking, with mandatory incarceration of some sort for repeat offenders of any age. To which the congregation again says, Amen. I mean, let's let's start by making you want the streets safer? Let's make a commitment to get the reckless, irresponsible criminals off the streets and out of their cars. And then let's see where we are. Because once you do that, I, I think then, you know, all right, you're, I think you're going to have 80% of the problem solved. Now, look, the truth is you're, you're never going to be able to, you know, have a zero number of people who are killed in traffic fatalities. That's, that's not realistic. It's not going to happen. But my place to start would be get the criminals off the streets, aggressively prosecute them, take their cars, make them really hurt if they decide that they're going to drive without license and things like that. Get those people off the street. Then you can start dealing with, like I say, all the ancillary stuff like, okay, maybe we need some calming traffic patterns or things like that. But it's never going to get better around here as long as you've got 15-year-olds that are stealing car after car after car and driving through red lights at 90 miles an hour. It's just flat out never going to get better. But as we look for these progressive solutions, we're going to create this other level of bureaucracy. You're going to have somebody who's got 93 grand a year whose job is going to be to sit back and say, well, Here's what I think we should do. Maybe we could narrow that street a little. Um, I mean, you want to talk about fiddling while Rome burns. That's precisely what this is. Dave in Grays Lake. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yes, thank you. Uh, the one key word that I haven't heard you say or anybody else say, and, and you're alluding to it in, in everything that you're saying, is the word consequences. There are no consequences 
when these guys break the rules, break the laws, whatever you want to call it. And, and that's what has to happen. When I was a kid, if I did something wrong, I got a spanking. That was a consequence. You know, yeah. I realized I better not do that again unless I want that spanking again. And there's yep. nothing like that out there now. But of course they do it again because why not? Nothing happens to them. You know, oh, so it's a, it's a game. No. Them, it's human nature. It is. No, thanks for the call, Dave. And, and, and when it comes to traffic fatalities, and I, I know we talk about this a lot, but I'm just, I, I will tell you, my look, I, I grew up in this area, and my frustration is I prepare a show on a daily basis, and I look at a number of different local websites, and I, I look at what all the different TV stations have on and things like that, and I listen to our radio news, and, and it's, it's story after story, and it, it comes down to a couple simple things and, and yeah there, there's always going to be that unfortunate situation where you have the truck driver that cuts off the snowplow driver and the snowplow driver loses control and ends up smashing into a tree there's always going to be those stories and and that's that is just unfortunately the nature of people and cars and roads there's always going to be the unfortunate situation where the person's going driving down the street and has the medical condition and passes out behind the wheel of the car and smashes into other cars there's always going to be the situation where oh the, the roads are slippery and somebody's even if they're maybe they're driving too fast for conditions and they lose control and you've got a seven car pileup that that is always going to happen and there are things that maybe we can do to, to figure out are there things we can do to minimize that the that happening but let's face it you know when we're talking about the vast majority of traffic deaths and these reckless driving and the serious injuries it, it's it's a criminal justice problem you don't need ninety four thousand dollars to hire some bureaucrat to sit around in some like ivory tower think tank and kick around ideas it's sort of like why the office of violence prevention has been such a joke we create that this office and and you have people that again it's uh, this ivory tower sort of stuff well okay what what can we do to make the street safer and maybe we could consider consider this or that or the other thing well okay the starting point needs to be you've got to get the criminal you you want violence to go down Let's take the people who are causing the violence and let's get them off the streets. Let's put them away and let's maybe take that $105,000 and use it to contribute towards building a facility to get a hardcore criminal off the street because you're not going to reduce violence until you do that. You're not going to make the streets safer. You're not going to get close to any sort of zero vision traffic fatalities and injuries as long as you have people who are driving without licenses or driving recklessly or running from the cops and to the point that Dave is making, don't fear any consequences at all. And you don't need to spend ninety three grand to hire somebody to see that. Some free advice. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. One more crime-related topic, and then some other stuff before the program ends. I I confess, back up from your back up from your radio. If you're streaming us, back up a little bit because I, I'm at this point where I've got one of these discussions that really has my head wanting to explode, and I, I don't want you to be caught when that ultimately you know happens. So just just back up a little bit. Think about when there is a crime committed and the suspect is still at large. So the police department 
is charged with notifying the public through the news media, through their websites or whatever, that a crime has been committed. And again, the the subject is still or suspects are still at large. They don't know who they are. All right. Now, when you put out a report like that, I, what what is one of the things that you typically see, for example, around here in Milwaukee? And it's it's a, it's a recurring pattern. Well, you had a 14 year old who was shot, you know, and killed at three o'clock in the afternoon on such and such a, stre- a, a stretch. Police are looking. Police have nobody in custody. They are you know they're looking for suspects. And then what typically happens? To the extent they have it, there will be a description of the person who committed the alleged crime, right? Because how how else can you, if you're trying to get information from the general public, for example, about hey, who, who might have committed this, well, is, isn't one of the things that you put out with a, a description of who committed it? So what would you expect to be in, in the description? Well, to the extent you have a description. Oh, there there was a carjacking that occurred at a grocery store parking lot. 72-year-old lady was approached by two individuals. One had a gun. They took the car. Okay, so what would you expect to the extent that you have this? Well, you'd expect a description of the robbers, right? So what would be some of the things that you would expect that an incident report would include? Well, it would certainly include the gender, right? Were, were these men or women? that were committing the robberies to the extent that you got a description of of height and weight oh this was a, a six foot four guy it was a five foot ten now again they're, sometimes they're estimates so they are imprecise but you you would expect gender you would expect um age perhaps right uh, somebody that the victim estimated was in their 40s that would be relevant right as opposed to somebody who was a teenager right so that's why you see the descriptions you know, uh, the lady was robbed by two people that, you know, the, the suspects were described as, you know, um, five foot eight, wearing whatever clothing they were wearing and um, an age. The victim estimated that they were in their, you know, early teens or whatever. OK, you'd expect, expect all that stuff, right? Because that is descriptive and it is relevant. What is one of the other things that is relevant in an incident report when you're trying to describe somebody who perpetrated a crime. Well, don't think too hard on this. Race, right? The the race of the person is a descriptor of that. So if it's two teenage Hispanic youths who robbed, you know, uh, this person at gunpoint, that would be relevant. If it's two white youths, you know, with identifying with tattoos or whatever, that would be relevant. And if it's two black youths, it would be relevant. Uh, it doesn't say that every 16-year-old five foot eight black kid is out there, for example, sticking guns in people's faces. But if you're looking for the people that did it by using race as an identifier, whatever that race may be, it narrows down the, the, the scope of the people you're looking for. Which brings me to a story from the um, Empower Wisconsin, which is a conservative website. Madison Police drop race from suspect descriptions in police reports. Last week, I'm quoting from the website now, a woman was filling up her vehicle at a convenience store in the 2700 block of Madison's East Washington Avenue when a, quote, man pointed a gun at her face and demanded she give him the keys, according to the Madison Police Department incident report. A man. 
two men got into the woman's vehicle and drove away, according to police. Two men. What did the men look like? How old were they? What race were the carjackers? The incident report that goes out to the public does not say. For a liberal city that it loves its identity politics, there's a surprising lack of racial identifiers in the public file. The police department in Madison has generally stopped including the race of crime suspects in incident reports. Madison Police Department Public Information Officer Stephanie Fryer tells Empower Wisconsin, the information on a suspect would have to be super descriptive and necessary to solving the crime for race to be included. We're not including something that says like the suspect was a black man in his early 20s because that could fit so many different people. We don't want people to be jumping to conclusions, so we're no longer doing that, etc., etc. And apparently this has been going on for a while. It happened after the former police chief, Mike Koval, retired in September of 2019. All right, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Old National Bank talk and text line. I mean, I'm sorry, this is this head-exploding moment because if there is a crime that is committed, I think the public, especially when the suspects are at large, I think the public has a right to know all the descriptions that are out there about the person who had or people who have committed the crime age gender descriptive features and yes that would include race and this wokeness this idea that well you know we can't say that it was two 14 year old hispanic kids or two 14 year old white kids or two 14 year old black kids that allegedly stuck a gun in the face of some 72 year old lady and stole her car um because gee we don't want the public to assume that it's all you know 14 year old black kids who are doing that is absolutely absurd race is a relevant factor and it should be included every time there is an incident report now after there is a, an arrest that's made Okay, in, in the public statement, you, you, can, you can make an argument that the, the race is not relevant once somebody's been caught. Who, who cares? That all plays out. But when a suspect is at large to knowingly and intentionally withhold the race, a, an identifying factor, I mean, what are, what are we going to do? Maybe if you're a male, should you be objecting to the term that they've described as males? Well, a 20, a 20 you know, a, a teenage male you know, committed the crime. Well, why are we saying male? Isn't that unfair to males? Because maybe it's going to make people think that all 20-some-year-old males are out there committing crimes. It's this wokeness that is going absolutely nuts. It doesn't accomplish anything. And candidly, I, I think it does a disservice to people who are trying to get people off the street. Oh, we can't do this. Why say males then? If you're not going to say it's an Hispanic male, you're not going to say it's a white male, you're not going to say it's a black male, why do we even bother saying males? Let's protect the males. How crazy has it gotten? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight 
So the Madison Police Department no longer includes race of suspects in incident reports. So when somebody is out there and they have committed a, a robbery, um, they, they don't they don't report it. Even if they know the suspects are Hispanic kids or white kids or black kids, they, they won't do it because they assume that people, I, I guess, are just too stupid to be able to recognize that, gee, you've got a couple teenage um, Hispanic kids, black kids, white kids, whatever, that are committing crimes. If we say that, if we tell the public the truth, they will then assume that all teenage Hispanic kids, white kids, black kids are committing crimes. So instead, we protect, we make it, we protect the the bad guys in the name of wokeness. How crazy is that? Mike in Cudahy. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Mr. Wagner, thanks for taking my call. See, I, my comment was, was parroted by you right before you went to the break, and that was the um, lefty community in Madison is tied in knots here because why identify the gender? That's, yeah. that's wrong. That, that's an that's a, a insult to the LGBTQ community to suppose a person's gender while they're carjacking someone. Well, right, and, and age. I mean, isn't this ageist Anything, as well? Right. I mean, for, right. I mean, like for for example, I mean, you know, you've got a report of, of a of a shooter who, you know, the estimates are the person is over seventy years old. Well, we can't report that because then they'll assume that every seventy year old guy is out there. I mean, these are objective, descriptive factors. Why would you withhold those from the general public? Oh, and the only reason is because we don't want somebody somewhere somehow to be offended. Right, no, and by the way, the, call- the uh, uh, overwhelming number of uh, criminals that happen to be of one racial makeup, and where's the equity in this crime system? Why aren't there more inclusive criminals, more equitable <laughs> outcomes? Well, right, you know, yeah, the I, my point. No, well, Mike, I mean, I, I understand. Well, I mean, look, actually, the, the story that I'm I'm looking at, I mean, talks about that. I mean, if you look at where crime is concentrated. I mean, a lot of crime in metropolitan areas is concentrated in heavily minority areas, and, it, and it's committed, it's it's black-on-black black crime, it's Hispanic-on-Hispanic Hispanic crime, it, it's that sort of stuff. So we're, we're going to, I guess, pretend that the crime isn't out there because, uh, again, we, we, we don't want to offend some woke warrior somewhere. Um, Jeff, I would like to comment, but my head actually did explode. Um, <laughs> Jeff, as President Reagan would say, there you go again. Why even say mail? Um, Jeff, that's ridiculous. When I saw three people running out of the Delafield Coles with their arms full of stolen merchandise, the first thing I told police that it was two black females and a black guy. It's a description. Well, well, that's that. that's right. You want to alert the public to this. And if it's a situation, well, let's take that as an example. If you've got, if you've got a a group, let's say it's a ring of people, and again, I, let's let's move away from for, forget black, forget Hispanic, forget white. But if you've got the description of, hey, we've got let, let's take we've got a group. It's it's two, you know, teenage white girls driven by a a twenty something year old white male, and they're driving in this particular van, and their modus operandi is they they pull in. And they they run into stores and they do a, a smash and grab or whatever. Why wouldn't you t- 
tell the public what the description of the people are, including what the race is, so that maybe people can be on the lookout for that, as opposed to wondering, hey, every time three people come into the store, are these the three people that have been involved in these smash and grabs? I mean, it's just, it's just silly. Um, Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Absolutely ludicrous. Another example of wokeness gone wild. You know, they're actually doing a disservice to the community they're supposed to protect by doing this. Because, yes, if the, if the suspects are at large, you want all the information you can get. Like you said, if you have just, let's just say we take out gender and eight, three people are out there that committed this crime. Well, that's going to help a lot. We're going to yeah. pull over every third person we see. Right. Or, or you're going to be suspicious if you're if you're uh, okay targeting, uh, you know, older women are being targeted, you know, in 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 shopping lot parking lots by people. I mean, no, you know, because so we're not going to tell people who you might want to be on the lookout for because somebody somewhere might be offended. It's thanks for the call, Mike. I'm sorry, it, and again, it's just you, you see these stories. And look, and I appreciate that there are some people who might not know how to process that information correctly and might say, oh, okay, this is, it was two Hispanic kids or two black kids or two white kids who committed this particular robbery, and maybe they're going to look at at scants at, at all the kids who fit like that. But that's, that's not the police's problem. Okay, maybe that's a larger societal problem. The job of the police is to catch people and to the extent when crimes are committed is, at least in my opinion, to inform the general public about who it is that is at large. And like I say, I draw a distinction. It's one thing if somebody's been arrested, you can make a strong argument that the race is not relevant. You know, once they're in custody, you know, what difference does it make? You know, we just caught these three people who robbed the corner bank. What difference does it make whether they're white or black or brown or green? Okay, that's not relevant. But that's after they're caught. That's after they're off the street. That's after they've been arrested and charged. When you're looking for people, we have an obligation, I think, to tell the general public everything about them. To number one, warn them that there are people out there on the street who might be committing these crimes. And number two, um, solicit their help oh gee we're you know we, we'd like to find you know who beat up this elderly woman but you know it it was it was two it was two men okay what exactly does this mean tell us the truth don't go woke when it comes to public safety A number of people are, are texting and emailing saying that uh, the, the TV stations around here do the, the same things. And I, I guess I, I'll have to try to pay attention to it. I don't, I don't know that, that I've necessarily noticed that. And I guess, see, again, my, my point is if we're trying to inform the public that there is a, a, a perpetrator at large – I think we owe it to the public to be honest and to give them all the information that that you have, as opposed to saying, "Oh, we we've got to we've got to be woke and we've got to we we don't want to have we don't want to say that the last eight crimes you know of armed robbery were committed by this type of person or that type of person because it might make it seem like." 
gee, lots of this type of person or that type of person are committing crimes in a particular area. So we're going to try to sanitize it. And I guess I just think that you should have a, a greater obligation to the general public. And if it's a bunch of 22-year-old, you know, skinhead white guys that are out there committing these crimes, tell the public that. And if that's unfair to other 22-year-old skinhead white guys who aren't committing those crimes, I'm sorry that that's just, it kind of comes with that territory. And maybe it means that for temporary, maybe it means temporarily that you're, you're going to be targeted or looked at askance. Sorry, too, too bad. That's just one of the things that happens. We can't, again, try to sanitize stuff. Well, things change. During, during COVID, at the start of the pandemic, you had many, 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 many companies that went to largely remote work. The, the company I work for did that. As, I mean, I, I can remember, uh, gee, I, I think during the first three or four months of COVID, I was working remotely. I was doing the, the show from my you know, upstairs office at, at my home. And the technology we have allows me to, allowed me to work remotely. And we, you know, we, we found that out. But nevertheless, um, a number of my, my teammates and stuff who did different functions, you know, they, they were working remotely. And chances are, if you work in an office, you, you might have experienced the same thing. The office closes down, but you're, you're working remotely, whether it's you're working as part of a call center or you're, uh, I don't know, doing coding work or, or whatever. You're, you're working remotely. And one of the things that we found is that a lot of people who were given the opportunity to work remotely liked to work remotely. You know, it was kind of nice that, hey, you, you don't have to get up and you don't have to uh, run to drive, get in your car and drive 25 minutes to the office and then, you know, drive 25 minutes back. People, people like that. And what happened is a lot of people got used to the fact that they were working remotely. Then, of course, what happened is there was the great shortage of workers because as part of during the pandemic, um, some people lost their jobs. Some people just dropped out of the workforce. Some people retired, etc. And so we've been going through this period of time where employers have been begging. They've been desperate to find people to do various jobs. And so when you're trying to find people to come in and do jobs, one of the things that people have been saying is, well, I want to work remotely and I'm not interested if, you know, unless, unless it's maybe a worst case scenario, I'd like to work at home all the time, but maybe a hybrid situation where maybe I work at in the office, you know, one or two days every couple of weeks, but I, and, and the employees and the prospective workers for the longest time, they, they had the upper hand because you had so many employers who were desperate to, uh, we, we, you know, we need somebody to do this or we need somebody to do that. So even if we prefer to have them come to the office, we, if, if we want this position filled, we've got to agree to it. All right, story in the Wall Street Journal the other day. The job market for remote workers is shrinking. Remote job opportunities are dwindling as fewer employers feel the need to lure talent with the promise of working from home. Many prospective workers who were determined to get a remote job just a couple months ago are hitting a wall as remote listings rapidly dwindle. After remote work surged during the pandemic, fewer employers now feel the need to lure talent with a promise of working from home. Remote jobs made up 13.2% of the postings advertised on LinkedIn last month, down from 20.6% in March. 
Wow. Other job sites such as Indeed.com and ZipRecruiter Recruiter also report substantial declines in remote listings. Demand for the jobs remains high. Remote jobs attracted a majority or almost 53% of all applications submitted on LinkedIn. The decline in remote listings marks the latest shift in the power dynamic between employers and employees. Companies are showing they can be choosier in their recruiting after months of scrambling for new talent. Hiring and wage growth have slowed from the red-hot pace of much of 2022. Then it goes on to say that, you know, it's it's getting tougher to, to get jobs. But for people who are insisting that they want to work remotely, more and more employers are saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not how we're going to do it. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, we've talked about this in a couple different contexts over the last couple years, actually since, you know, the start of the pandemic, and the fact that lots of people, you know, prefer remote work. Here is my question to you. Is is remote work dwindling? When you think about your workplace, are more people being brought back? Um, if it was one situation where you could work at home, has it gone to hybrid? If it was hybrid, has it now gone to, um, okay, you, you've got to be back in the office? And if you're looking and insisting on, I want to work remotely, you know, how's that affecting the job? Is your employer going along with that? Because at least the, the numbers that are out there, I think more and more employers are saying, okay, now, you know, we don't have, we're not as pressed to try to find employees. So it's not completely a buyer's market. You know, the employees can't say, well, okay, I'm not going to come work for you unless you work, make me work at home. If the employer wants them in the office, they can say, okay, fine, we're going to pass your resume on. We're going to find somebody else. Is remote work dwindling? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back. I, I typically do not do like dedications and stuff, but I but I am reminded. I want to do a shout out before the program ends. Two dear, dear, very dear friends of mine, Disco John and his wife Mary. They share bir- their birthday. Disco John's birthday was yesterday, and my dear friend Mary, her birthday was today. I want to send out very, very special birthday wishes to both of them. All right. which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Interesting story in the Wall Street Journal talking about how, you know, for the longest time, at least coming out of the pandemic, uh, people who wanted to work remotely, they, they they, they had a lot of the cards. Uh, that is now changing. Jeff, my husband works at a very large company in Cudahy. The whole plant is at work, but the office people are mostly remote. This was because of COVID. Why? COVID, for the most part, is over as far as it being a pandemic. When the plant employees have a problem, good luck finding someone in HR to even handle the problem. The office people are spoiled. I feel they don't want to come back. Jeff, I've worked remotely since before the pandemic. I understand not all jobs can, but if you want the highest quality employee in my industry, it needs to at least be hybrid. Would these companies rather take an employee that does not get as much work done or just have them in the office? Jeff, I think as the older generation retires, the younger generation will make remote working acceptable and I think it's going to be more common. Jeff, although I am retired, I have several family members, including my children, who during COVID went 100% remote. However, all the people I know that work in that type of business are now working in a hybrid schedule. Even my son, who is a pediatric 
Crick neurologist, works home at his office, writing reports and giving lectures over Zoom call. My guess is hybrid is the way to go. Mike says, I think remote working is dwindling because these companies have leased and built uh, buildings that are not being filled up with employees and they have to pay the rent somehow, so they're bringing them back. You know, there there is an element to that. There's a couple, at least two, big companies that are relocate that are locating in, into downtown Milwaukee, relocating into downtown Milwaukee, and one of the deals is that they will have X percent of their workforce that will be working in the office. The idea being, hey, the, the city you know wants the corporate headquarters, but they also want the workers that are going to be coming down there, and presumably, you know. Um, I don't know, parking in the parking lots and and going out to lunch and maybe staying afterwards for a drink or things like that. So I think there is an element of that that's there that people, a lot of these businesses are saying, okay, well, we want people back in. And as a condition of moving into these new offices, this is it. I See, I think one of the things that's happened is the, the pandemic did, I think, demonstrate that in, in many businesses, you can work remotely and you can work, you could, you could do it just fine. At the same time, I mean, I certainly understand the perspective of management who believes that there's a certain synergy from having people come in. And it is a balancing. I think more and more moving forward in the offices of the future, you're going to see more and more hybrid sort of work options where, you know, maybe Maybe it's one day a week you, you get to work from home, but the other four days of the week we expect you to be um, to, to be in the office. Um, Jeff, I think I hope working from home is declining. I'm getting frustrated on calls where you hear babies in the background, dogs barking, etc. I think people are taking advantage of it now. Um, Jeff, I feel, I mean, sometimes I think, you know, a company is afraid to make office people come back because they're afraid that they are going to quit for a remote job. Well, I, I think there's that concern that is out there, but of course the, the, the problem is that I don't think there's as many remote jobs as there are, as there used to be uh, a year and a half ago when a lot of employers were just absolutely desperate for people, well, then it was the you know prospective employee could say, okay, well, you know, I've got skills and I can do these sales sort of things, or I do coding or, or whatever. I, I'm, I do IT or whatever. And as a condition of coming to work for you, Mr. Wagner, one of the things that I'm going to want is I want to guarantee that I can work from home three or four days a week. And myself as the HR person or the owner of the company or whatever going, well, I I desperately need somebody to do this job. So I'm not in a position to say no, if that's the person's requirement and they're qualified, I can't find anybody else that's qualified. So I'll say yes, even though I don't like that particular option. Well, I mean, that dynamic is changing because if you decide you're going to say, okay, I'm not coming in, I'm not going to take that job unless you you allow me to work remotely. Well, now it might be, okay, well, that's fine. I appreciate that. I'm going to just move on to, you know, somebody who's, you know, next on the resume. Um, let's say, Jeff, here's a solution. A lot of them work at home by having the privilege of working at home. They pay a higher Social Security tax. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I just think this is between the employer and the employee. I mean, and I don't, I don't think people who – I don't think it is unreasonable, for example, to say – Hey, I I just I feel I can do my job working remotely and I want to do that. I don't think that's an unreasonable position. I similarly don't think it's an unreasonable position for an employer to say, 
well, you know, for whatever reasons, no, we we don't want to create that hybrid workplace. You know, we think it's important to have have you together as part of the team, and we think it's important to be in you know the, the same facility and bouncing ideas off of everybody. And you know, we want to see you more than once a week. I, I think you know both positions are, are reasonable. And obviously, if the employee is a desirable employee that the company wants to keep and the uh and the person is like dead set on having to work remotely well then you get the the negotiation and and maybe you can you can work out something but if the on the other hand if the employee is somebody who the company feels can be easily replaced well then you know don't be surprised if you're in a situation where boom uh you're 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 gone one before we turn it over to wisconsin's afternoons one other thing i want to notice you know, I, I've talked a lot about how what what the I'm as a as a creature of pop culture. I, I'm the first to acknowledge I, I still love newspapers. I, I do. I and even though I read a lot of newspapers online, I, I still appreciate that there's some people that love the old fashioned newspaper. I just I don't understand how that business model makes any sense. And I, I've talked about this. I, you know, I, I had some even online subscriptions uh, to a couple papers that I was using for research. I canceled them, right? Because I, I was paying like what I thought was stupid money. And th- these companies come back to me, Chicago Tribune, LA Times. And I, I, I've re-upped with them because I got this deal saying five cents a month for six months. And, and you know you you get a subscription a penny a week for six months so I, I mean it was literally like a dollar a dollar fifty and in six months of the LA Times the Chicago Tribune and all I got to do is remember to cancel it again after six months but I, I think okay I'm paying a buck for this how how can you you know pay people if you're charging folks a dollar and the answer is you really can't story in the Washington Post the Washington Post is laying off another 20 newsroom employees and they're saying they're not going to fill another 30 vacancies so that's another 50 jobs gone it's been a bloodbath at the local newspaper the Gannett papers they're they're losing people right and left all because the economics just make absolutely no sense and I I don't have any answer for it but you know classified advertising is pretty much non-existent you've got some print advertising that's there and revenue from subscriptions how can you make money on subscriptions if you've got your your yourself you're giving away your product for a nickel a week or you know a dollar 89 for six months it's just i don't know that i don't know how the business model sustains itself and i'm somebody who loves newspapers as a general thing. I mean, some individual newspapers probably deserve to go out of business, but I love newspapers as a general thing. I just don't understand how they are going to continue to sustain themselves in the future because every time you see a story, it's, okay, more people getting laid off, and it's because the economics just don't work anymore, and I don't know what the answer is. 